The Inflation Reduction Act. It's been in the headlines, but how does it impact us all? Helping to break it down for us in their fun way are the ladies from the Taxes for the Masses podcast, Dr. Lisa DeSimone and Dr. Bridget Stomberg. This is Financial Recon, connecting the dots between everyday life and money. Here's Mike Molitoris with Dr. Lisa DeSimone and Dr. Bridget Stomberg. All right, Lisa and Bridget, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. I know this is going to be hot of mind uh, for a lot of people, but we'll love to get your take on this Inflation Reduction Act and kind of what it is and what we should be looking for. Happy to help. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. Um, so I'll I'll jump in and try to give a high level, not too boring overview <laughs> of what the Inflation Reduction Act is. And when Lisa and I have talked about it, we always hearken back to the Build Back Better plan, which was basically uh, President Biden's big legislative agenda, the things that he wanted to accomplish during his tenure. And it was looking at things like tackling climate change, healthcare provisions, mm-hmm. and then also some family-friendly, child-friendly provisions, and also infrastructure. So those are sort of the big areas um, that he was going to touch on. And, you know, initially it was calling for a pretty substantial price tag, $3.5 trillion, trillion with a T. And I think when we're, when we're talking about numbers that big, like, I don't even know what that means, right? Yeah. It's, I think it's too big for the average person. Uh, and really- what's, what's after a trillion? Because I feel like for kids, it's going to be the next like level, you know, like right. we, billions were level trillions now. <laughs> That's such a good point. At least I yeah. would know that. I don't know. What is it? What's it? What's it? Okay. There's, we get to Google at some point, don't we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Phone a friend, you know, lifelines. But is it, isn't Google like a number? Yeah. It's yeah. A, a million oh, is it? zeros, isn't it? It's a one with mil- a million zeros after it. Okay. I think. That is not go. my, that, uh, that I did not, I just learned something. So. There we go. See, and we're, we're not just about taxes here. We can, we have all sorts of nerdy things that we can, that we can share. Um, you know, so that's what he was hoping to do. 3.5 trillion in spending. They peeled off about a trillion of that. And that was the infrastructure plan uh, that got passed early last fall. And then the house actually passed in November, something called the build back better act that had about 2.2 trillion of spending in it. And the Congressional Budget Office at that time thought that that was going to increase the deficit by about $160 billion over 10 years. So lots of spending. Typically, it doesn't make Republicans happy. Um, in this case, it also didn't make uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia happy. Um, you know, he was really worried about what the act would do in terms of inflation. Uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona also needed some coaxing to get on board. So really, you know, we had that act pass the House in November, and then it sort of stalled. Right. Until now. Until now. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you know, Joe Manchin, I think he had an op-ed and was the either the Times or the Journal basically saying, you know, he wasn't he wasn't going to play ball. Um, you know, and we're in a situation right now because we're basically deadlocked in the Senate, right? 50-50. So right. they need all of the Democrats, all of the independents on board to pass any sort of legislation. So they really had to do what they had to do to get Manchin and Cinema on board. And it looked at the beginning of this year, I I think like that wasn't going to happen. Agreed. It seemed completely dead. Um, and then, you know, we heard that there were 
some backroom negotiations going on again over the summer and it, like people were getting their hopes up and then those died as well. And everybody kind of like threw up their hands and were like, yeah, this is over. This is done. Yeah, I know that. I, for one, thought it was a, it was dead as well. And I just, with the negotiations that happened and everything, how did they get Mansion and Cinema to, you know, come on board? So it's a great question. And I think one of the things they really had to do to get Mansion on board was cut the spending. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the, the house bill, like I mentioned, was about 2.2 trillion. This actual inflation reduction act that passed is less than a trillion. So it's 437 billion of spending and then 300 billion of deficit reduction. And I think that's something that was important to Mansion. Whereas what passed the house was going to actually increase the deficit. Here we've got some funding or some dollars earmarked to actually reduce the deficit. So I think, you know, one thing that got Mansion on board at least was a smaller price tag. And and I think there's some other things that convinced cinema that that Lisa can probably um, you know, allude to uh in a bit when we talk about kind of kind of what, what stayed and what went. What what was left on the cutting room floor. Yeah. 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 Right. After the lobbyists got a hold of it. Exactly. So it did stay. What what mm-hmm. the, the spending provisions that remain, it's um, you know, an extension of the Affordable Care Act which is going to help individuals pay uh, a little bit less for their private insurance premiums. Um, another thing that was on the healthcare side is it allows Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, which seems like a no-brainer. I didn't realize that they didn't already have this power. So yeah, that's, yeah I didn't either. <laughs> yeah. it, seems, it seems like a good thing. Um, it's also going to put some caps on the out-of-pocket prices that Medicare beneficiaries pay for the prescription drugs. Again, seems like a great thing. And uh, one of the things that was added, you know, to make cinema happy was some money earmarked for um, targeting Western drought issues in the Western United States. And so since she's coming from Arizona, you know, that's something that um, I don't think she was in charge of or involved in writing the provision, but it was something that I think uh, people thought would appease her a little bit. Um, so those are some of the big spending provisions that stayed. Either of you ever tried figuring out the Part D math that? Thankfully, no, no, it, it is. It is awful. Like, so hopefully this will make things a little easier because my personal opinion, I always say Medicare is like, you know, we all go through this training for elder abuse and sites. Medicare is probably the greatest elder abuse. Like Mm -hmm. asking a 90 something year old person to figure out this math is just absolutely insane. So I'm hoping that, you know, for a lot of them, that's gonna, this bill will ease some of that. I call it fuzzy math. (laughs) Right, right. And I mean, anytime you put caps on prices or uh, mechanisms in place to try to bring prices down, that by its very nature is anti-inflationary. So um, this, I think this part of the the bill really is getting that inflation reduction. That's a great point. Kind of what stayed in from the healthcare side. Um, Like we said, the infrastructure bill got passed separately. The other mm-hmm. big thing that Biden wanted to do was address, you know, climate change and try to get some incentives in there for clean energy. And we definitely have those. So, um, you know, there's an existing tax credit for purchases of electric vehicles. This act expands that in some ways. It shrinks it in some <laughs> ways, uh, which is which is pretty, pretty crafty. Um, one of the big things, though, now is you can actually get an electric vehicle credit for a used car, which you can't do under the current program. So that's that's pretty nice. Um, The trick is that there's some skepticism about how many cars are actually going to qualify 
for this credit, at least in the next couple of years, because it's got some pretty, pretty serious restrictions in terms of both the price of the car um, and then what the car battery can be made of. I'm not even going to try to touch that. I don't understand anything <laughs> about about car manufacturing. Um, but this is one of those things that I think some people are worried it looks good on paper, but it's kind of to be determined how um, how helpful it's actually going to be. Yeah, that in particular, before people go run out and buy Teslas and yep. everything. I, I mean, CNBC, as much as I pan them, they actually had a great infographic like when this was going through about who were the, the manufacturers who might benefit, who might not benefit. Mm-hmm. leave it to the government. I think that like, you know, we have supply chain disruption now for regular cars. Is this credit going to lead to that? A lead to just more inflationary pressures now on the mm. EV side? Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, anytime you give a handout, a, a, a break on the price of something, mm-hmm. you're, just, you're just potentially driving up the price that people are willing to pay because they have more money in their pockets to afford that thing. So, you know, whether it's uh, mortgage interest deductions and housing prices or EV credits and EVs, yeah, it, it's going to provide a little bit of inflationary pressure. One yeah. of the other things, and, and I'll let Lisa talk to this because she's the economist uh, among the two of us. I am not. We, we use that term very <laughs> lightly. We, 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 do, we do. We do. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, you get to wear that hat, not me. Um, you know, one thing that I think is kind of interesting is when companies innovate quickly, when you're the first mover, it's risky, right? right. And you get to recoup. You know, one of the reasons you take those risks is because you think you're going to get to recoup that outflow and the R&D and all of that, the cash that you spent through higher prices. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting that this credit comes with a price cap mm. on on the cost of the vehicle. And I wonder what that's going to do from an innovation perspective. It's kind of, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's taking away the incentive to do the work that you need to do to be able to charge the high price for your car if your car then all of a sudden isn't going to qualify for this credit. Yeah, I will say um, it's a good thing they're doing this now and not, you know, 10 years ago or when Tesla was just starting out. Right. They basically had those high end cars to to basically fund what eventually would be the technology for a more mass market yes. affordable vehicle. That was the business model. Um, so, yeah, like these other competitors coming in now trying to keep up. It, it's yeah, it's a fair question. How how much are they having to put out to to catch up and are they going to be able to fit under these caps? The thing that I'm curious about, and this is just thinking 10 years down the road, is you hit push all these people to the EVs, which is great, good for the Mm -hmm. economy, all that. But some of these cars, their battery life is 10 years. Mm -hmm. And in particular, my friend who has a a mechanic, he's a mechanic, told me there's one major company that if you're buying their electric vehicles right now, they're making you sign an agreement says you will not resell it. If you buy a brand new, you will not resell it. And you have to replace the battery at 10 years, which the battery costs $26,000. Wow. I wonder if this, you know, if we were to fast forward 10 years from now, if we're going to be saying Lisa and Bridget, are there going to be tax credits for those people to offset right. those mm-hmm. battery costs or mm-hmm. things like that that come down the road? I mean, because you're going to push all these people to it. I think it's... That's one thing that's going to be really, really interesting to follow um, in the coming yeah. years. I think one thing that's challenging is I, I 
you know, we, we think lobbying has a bad, lobbying gets a bad rap and, you know, we can, we can put that to the side for a second. But when you, you're raising a really good point. I wonder how many people who drafted this legislation are aware of that. I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know that this was a thing that, you know, batteries were so expensive. And so I think whenever you're trying to deal with something so specific, it's helpful to have insight and input from the people in the industry who actually understand what's going on. And my fear is that sometimes we either don't have time to do that or, or, you know, politicians perceive that they don't have time to do that, or they think it's going to look bad if they consult someone in the auto industry but, you know, you're raising valid points. And I, I don't know that those were considered, you know, in the drafting well, of this legislation. Yeah, I mean, who, who knows? We're not behind those closed doors as right. as they, <laughs> they uh, wheel and deal. I mean, who would have ever thought West Virginia would have so much power? <laughs> right. I mean. It, yeah, it, it is that. <laughs> astounding how much power a mansion has yeah yeah uh, it's 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 interesting but one thing that i wanted to touch on was we talked about some of the provisions mm-hmm. what was one of the biggest omissions from this legislation it's it's hard to know where to start because <laughs> as b said so much was cut out from you know the grand vision of the build back better act um but even earlier versions of of the negotiated legislation i'll i'll point out a few things um you know the, there are some things affecting individuals um you know there was supposed to be a surcharge on high income individuals and that got dropped um as b already said some child and family friendly stuff got dropped unfortunately because we had to cut spending um two of the bigger things that to me resonate as wow how did this get dropped from the bill um are actually corporate or or business uh, provisions. So the big one to me is the global minimum tax, um, bringing our global intangible low tax income or guilty provision that was part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, bringing that in line with an international agreement um, that has been proceeding. We had an agreement a year ago, over 130 countries, 15% global minimum tax. U.S. was one of those countries. Right. We have not enacted it yet. Um, and, you know, this was kind of, to me, our big chance, and it wasn't included in the bill. Instead, we got this minimum tax on book income, uh, which we can disparage later. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know how this managed to get dropped, but closing the carried interest loophole, I it's amazing to me that this carried interest provision is even on the books. So um, to briefly explain what it is, it's it's for private equity managers. Um, It's part of the fees that they get paid to manage other people's money. And it's effectively compensation, but it is, it comes in the form of return on the investment in the businesses that the private equity firm buys and runs. And that's treated as care, as, uh, as a capital gain. Um, so as, as long as it's held long enough, um, it can be qualifying for a 15% rate, whereas the top ordinary rate right now is 37%. And these are, these are not people who need a tax break, right? These are right. people who have a, pretty good amount of money. They're managing rich people's money. They're making themselves rich in the process. And somehow we're letting them get this big tax break on a vast portion of their compensation, which just baffles me. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think this is something that people have been trying to address for years. I remember this was an issue back when I was in practice, you know, 15 years ago. So I agree with Lisa that it's it's amazing when something keeps coming up and we keep identifying it as a loophole. And I think a lot of times tax practitioners don't like that word. I think it's a loophole. You know, I think this is an appropriate use of that word. Um, 
and, you know, we're just not willing to close it. And what I think is so interesting is, is how much we just want to beat up on public companies. And like Lisa said, these are private equity fund managers. Their dealings are typically not in the public eye. And I feel like this is a very illustrative example of how we let um, publicity and public ire over things drive tax policy. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's one of the reasons behind this, uh, this corporate minimum book tax that Lisa alluded to that we did enact instead of that global minimum tax that we probably should have enacted um, instead of this carried interest loophole that we should be thinking more about. But I, I think it's just not so salient to the average person what a private equity fund manager or hedge fund, hedge fund manager is doing that it sometimes gets swept to the side. Well, I, I think this is one of those examples of don't hate the player, hate the game. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, people say, well, this is how rich people, oh, they, they know how to play the, play the, uh, play the laws and so forth and yeah. have their team of like, accountants doing their thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the, one of the things with, you know, we talked about um, briefly was about companies, you know, how people are focused on them so much. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, what is it, the 1% buyback tax or, mm. or what's going on there? Because that's, I think, a you know, real interesting uh, thing that's come out of this. Sure, absolutely. So there were we talked about the funding a little bit about the spending rather mm-hmm. a little bit uh, spending provisions. We've got, you know, the electric vehicle credit. We've got some more individual credits for installing solar panels on your house. Um, and then there's also going to be credits targeted at businesses for trying to, you know, produce this green energy, making investments in, okay. in green energy and green initiatives. So to pay for that, um, you know, we got to raise tax revenue somehow because mm-hmm. mansion was not going to let us increase the deficit. So the two biggest provisions that have come out of this on the corporate side are this 15% minimum tax on book profits, which we've alluded to, um, you know, just really high level. The idea here is politicians get really upset when companies allegedly, and I want to say allegedly, pay no tax, but report, you know, billions of dollars of income to their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And so the idea here is we're going to crack down on that by taxing the profits that get reported to shareholders with some adjustments. That's uh, supposed to be the biggest revenue raiser in this in this bill. Second is this one percent buyback tax you're talking about, um, which you know I think Lisa and I also think is not not a great idea. But the idea here is that um, you know we get upset. We've had lots of articles, especially after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that mm-hmm. companies took this rate reduction. Their rate went from thirty five percent to twenty one percent, freed up all this cash, and they just paid it back to their shareholders by buying back stock. And we get upset about that because it's, you know, uh, most most of the people who engage in those repurchases tend to be individuals, wealthy, high wealth individuals. Um, you know, so I think there was some thought that the tax savings from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was supposed to go to workers. Turns out by many estimates, it really went back to, to high wealth shareholders. And so what this is doing is it's saying, all right, you can do that all day long. You can buy back shares as much as you want, but we're going to put a 1% tax on the value of that share buyback. So that's essentially what's going on um, with with the buyback tax. It's going to be born at the corporate level. It's going to be something that the corporations own. It's not going to fall to the individuals. But then the question is, you know, how does it how does it change the the the, the payouts that shareholders yeah. are, are getting right. from from their companies that they're investing in? Yeah, and that's what I'm like. The first thing that goes through my head is, do we see buybacks just? I, I shouldn't say disappear, but severely reduce here 
after Q4 dividends increase? It's a it's a great question. I think we can see two things happen. To your point, we could do a whole bunch of buybacks at the end of this year, right? Because this is a provision that's not in place until next year. So we could see companies accelerate uh, repurchases in Q4 to ignore Mm -hmm. or avoid this tax. And then I think you hit the nail on the head after this tax is in place. You know, companies have options for how they return value to shareholders. And one way is repurchases and one way is dividends. And dividends are going to escape this tax. So we could absolutely see a shift to dividends. One of the tenants of finance theory is that companies don't like dividends as much because once you start paying a dividend, you sort of always have to pay the dividend. And if you miss yeah. the dividend... Oh, guilty. We like it. We like dividends. <laughs> okay, there you go. So you, you understand. You look really yeah. bad. But I wonder if you know a rational investor can now say, hey, they have to issue the special dividend or issuing the special yeah. dividend is actually saving them cash or... you know, So I'm not going to hold them to that standard. So maybe we do see more special dividends. Um, yeah. So like the reverse of when we, what was it, man, I can't even remember how many years ago when we had that flurry of companies doing those bonus dividends. Yeah, It's like, it's almost like the re- we're reversing, reverse engineering it or something. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out that whether it's a buyback or a dividend, you're putting money back in the hands right. of investors. It's not going to the employees. It's not going in a price discount to customers. So, um, you know, if the goal was to get money back into the hands of employees and customers, I don't think it's going to work. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. The money's going back into the economy. Yes, it's going primarily to higher wealth uh, investors, but it's at least going back into the economy and they could reinvest in other businesses if they want and businesses that might, you know, need that money. So, I, I struggle a little bit with like trying to make companies um, decide that the best return on that dollar is to reinvest back in their business when maybe the best return on that dollar is to give it back to the shareholders. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because it just it seems like now this the way that this law is written just gives more fuel to, you know, Professor Jeremy Siegel's concept of super uh, dividend growing stocks being like super tips. Mm. And it's going to be definitely something that'll be interesting to see if how it plays out in the, in the especially in the next year. I mean, because the dividend increases this year alone have been in, you know, you have companies 50 percent. Are we going to mm. see potentially triple digit increases? You know, that's if that pool of money is now right. just got a whole lot. And I, one person I'm going to be watching intently on this whole thing is Mr. Buffett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to hate this. <laughs> well, you know, he, he loves to buy. Like, he always talks about if Berkshire gets down cheap enough, he's yep. happy to buy back. And yep. does that change his behavior? You know, um, I, I, I think it's really going to be fascinating. So out of this whole thing, if we were to look at the law in totality, the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. who would you say are the biggest winners? Who are the biggest losers? Biggest winner by far, Democrats, uh, for getting anything passed. Uh, They needed this. And uh, uh, Politico, I think, had a covered a poll today that said that this is being pretty well received. So I think they found that about 41 percent of the people they surveyed are in support of the act. I think 32 percent are not. And to Lisa's point, that contrasts with what happened right after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed by Trump. That basically was panned out of the gates. This, I mean, it's not overwhelming support, but 41%, I think the Dems would take that. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And and what industries do you think like what company or I shouldn't say companies, but industries would you say that win from this? Yeah. Um, certainly any industry involved in clean energy in any way. So yeah. I do think the car companies are going to find a way to take advantage of those <laughs> credits. It, it may take a little time to find a product that actually meets. You mean like the solar people who come to your house and like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. We're going to have to change our sign that says no more. Are we, we only like, uh, girl scouts and boy scouts and no solar roofers and <laughs> stuff like that. Sorry. <laughs> Just, you know, living in Texas, like it's it's our only option if the grid is going to go down. Which yeah, right. We, we've been pretty close over a few times over the last eighteen months, so I expect a, a lot well, of. Let me, let me ask you that. Let me just throw that curveball since you brought it up. Doesn't this seem like putting the cart before the horse here? Because the grid is like it takes a heat heat or winter storm and it collapses. We're going to have all these people plugging in. Yeah, I almost said that earlier. But then, you know, the counterpoint of that is you're not going to be able to pump gas either if you don't have electricity. So uh, nobody's going to be on the road. We're we're all screwed if the grid goes down. <laughs> yeah, that's that's make sure your tank's always full. Then I guess is the yeah, and, and your battery. I guess yeah. Um. So we said clean energy. Anybody else you would think category we categorize as a uh, winner in the private equity. <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. Yep. Um, and, and I'll throw the IRS in there, too. They, they're getting some badly needed resources. So um, yes. I think they would consider that a win. Mm-hmm. I think all the I think accountants everywhere would easily who are in therapy because of the whole music would uh, <laughs> would say that. No, I mean, I'm happy you brought that up because it's such a good point. And I think so much of the focus has been on, oh my gosh, they're going to be, it's the enforcement, right? They're going to have guns. They're going to be going after small, you know, business yeah. owners and, and, and poor taxpayers. But you've hit on something that I think a lot of people don't realize the IRS does, and that's help taxpayers. Yeah. There's a huge part of the IRS that is called taxpayer services. And I saw some statistic the other day, only one in every 10 calls is getting through and getting answered. And that's after sitting on hold for, you know, 30 minutes or something like that. So I think that there's something that we can, we can all focus on something happy here, which is that there should be more services that the IRS can provide to taxpayers. It's oh, not I, bad. I, yeah, I, I've, I've freely tell the story that I had a problem with, um, you know, with um, from the COVID laws about the uh, splitting the Social Security and Medicare, mm. and they messed up my return, and I ha- I couldn't get anyone. It literally took me going to my congressperson's office oh because the taxpayer's wow. advocate was like, "We may get to you." That was the voice. Of, we may get to you, and even the Congress people got like a kind of half answer. You know, like it w- so help they need a lot of it and i'm Mm -hmm. hoping that you know like this will um this will clean things up for everybody be a little bit at least because it's been a train wreck since i want to say what covid COVID at least maybe before that i think i think covid absolutely exacerbated things with all like you said all of the provisions that came in place around there is my unemployment taxable is it not taxable (laughs) you know what am i doing with all this stuff so yeah i think that covid covid probably accelerated um issues that were already there and and, you know since we're talking about the individual 
this mm-hmm. we've talked about how this inflation reduction act talks or you know impacts businesses industries what have you mm-hmm. we talked a little we talked about the ACA and the medicare as as the individual the end taxpayer how does this this bill translate to them like what is what are they what should they be looking for or per, yeah. or planning for i should say so I just saw an NBC News poll today um, that says that more people think the act is either going to hurt them or not impact them than think that it's actually going to help them. Um, so, I, we're you know, hard to know why it's people are responding so favorably to it, <laughs> relatively speaking, when they don't think it's actually going to help them. But, um, you know, I, I do think that the average American... Um, especially those on Medicare are going to see benefits in lower drug prices. I mean, if that doesn't come out of this, then what are we doing? Um, that, that just has to be an outcome. Uh, wealthier individuals could see increased enforcement. There's been a lot of talk about how some of those resources are going to go towards hiring new agents and how there needs to be a focus on the higher end of the income spectrum rather than the lower end and certainly not those receiving the earned income tax credit. So, you know, there, I think those are probably the, the biggest ways that individuals are going to see changes unless unless they really are interested in going out and getting rooftop solar or getting that EV, then of course, they're going to see some of those credits come through. You know, I think this is something that a lot of the economists have been interested in. And, and we've seen a couple of estimates of the distributional effects of the of the act. So one was from the Penn Wharton budget model. And they basically said that all groups of taxpayers are going to have some additional tax burden, but it ranges from $5 on average at the lowest end of the distribution to over $60,000 on average for the top 0.1%. So, you know, leave it. I'm I'm sure some politician is going to come along and take that headline and misrepresent it that everybody's taxes are probably going to be affected a little bit, but it's a really, really teeny tiny bit um, that a lot of these estimates are forecasting at the lower end of the income distribution. And it, it, it does seem like we're doing what we want it to do in a progressive tax system, which is the bigger increase in tax burdens are going to fall on the highest income individuals. I know that with one of the things we, when we were talking about before was paying the div- increase in dividend income, potentially. Mm-hmm. One thing that jumps to mind is like, sh- could that be accretive for the government? Because if you have the people def- not wanting to do buybacks, but paying out the higher dividend income and you get these massive potential increases that uh, companies are paying out. Now they're, they're taxing at 15%. Could that be more creative to uncle Sam from the average taxpayer than we figure? I mean, it actually goes further than that um, because the, the buyback is going to be taxed as a capital gain uh, qualifying for that top rate of 15%. Mm-hmm. Whereas dividends, a lot of them are ordinary. Um, you could have qualified div- dividends if it's a domestic C corporation. You've held the shares for more than, I think, 60 days, I want to say, um, before the ex-dividend date. Um, so there's these qualifications you could jump through to get a lower rate, but a lot of people end up paying the higher ordinary rate, top rate of 37% on dividends. So that alone, switching, you know, even holding the magnitude constant, just switching from a yeah. lower tax rate to a higher tax rate, you're going to have more tax revenues. And then, as you said, if we see an, you know, significant increase in dividends, that's going to multiply that even more. And one of the things that I really try to drive home to my students, I'm about to teach this in two weeks, is um, even if you hold the rate constant, even if we're just paying 15%, if I get a repurchase, I'm giving you back my shares. I have basis that I can use to offset mm-hmm. that. So if I get $100 for you to rebuy my share, 
I'm not paying tax on the whole $100. Whereas if I get a $100 dividend, I'm paying tax on the whole $100. And beyond that, if I generate capital gains from my repurchases, I can use those to eat up my capital losses or said differently, I can offset that gain with some capital losses that I'm sitting around. So even, you know, Lisa's absolutely right that there could be a rate differential, but even holding the rate constant, um, individual taxpayers would oftentimes prefer a dividend or sorry, um, a, a buyback to a dividend because it's going to reduce the amount that is subject to tax. Now, it could be opposite on the corporate side because of that dividends received deduction. So corporations sometimes tend to prefer uh, to get the dividend because they can they can not have to include all of it in taxable income anyway. So um, you're right. That's something that companies are going to have to balance here because now we're talking about potentially shifting the burden, right? If it's right. an excise tax, you know, the corporation, quote unquote, is paying that. If we switch to dividends, it could increase the tax burden on the actual shareholders. And the other thing that's jumping to mind as we're talking through this is what's going to happen to people who are subject to the Medicare adjustments for income? Mm. You know, are, is Medicare going to adjust appropriately for inflation? Is our retirement plans going to be more tied to, infl- you know, all these it's like, you know, a snowball rolling downhill. Where, where are all these things going to lead to? And will, at the end of the day, they not be rising fast enough to prevent someone from getting hit with that? Maybe um, that's what Manchin meant by inflation taxes. I don't mm, know. Yeah, very, uh, very possible. But one other thing that just circling back to the individual that has just come up, you know, first thing this morning. And I wanted to ask you ladies about was, you know, how this is called the inflation reduction act. Mm-hmm. So when I read through this, I see a lot of catalysts being the inflation enhancement act personally. But that doesn't sound as good. Like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. Yeah. They don't ask my opinion. Um, but how student loan forgiveness fall into this whole sea of things because it just seems like for something that's meant to reduce inflation, this could be just, you know, you're, you're cutting drug prices, you're cut. And I understand people are going to dedicate so many, so much of those resources to their, to their needs. We also saw with giving out money, how does that fall into this whole thing? It's a really good question. And, you know, Lisa has, always keeps me disciplined that this this bill doesn't actually have a name, right? Because it was passed through the reconciliation process. So <laughs> I think we just get to call it whatever we wanted. We could call it, you know, the Biden is awesome act, whatever. We went with Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, but there's a lot of speculation out there that um, cutting taxes is not necessarily good for in, for curbing inflation, right? It's exactly what you said. If we put more money in people's pockets, however we're doing that, through a reduction in taxes or through student loan forgiveness or whatever, mm-hmm. there's always the possibility that any sort of government aid that's going to individuals is going to, is going to at the very least not help with inflation. Right? right. And, you know, there was actually, there's some studies that have been done that it's show that, you know, inflation's a global thing right now, mm-hmm. but that it was really after that 2021 stimulus act was passed in the U S that we saw U S inflation begin to outpace global inflation. So there definitely is some research out there to speculate that we are maybe overdoing it from um, a government aid and a government, you know, subsidy perspective, if you want to call it that, and that that is contributing, um, you know, to inflation. If if we look at the Inflation Reduction Act specifically, 
Um, the Penn Wharton budget model, again, and some others have basically said it's not going to affect inflation either way. So, you know, is it going to reduce inflation? No, misnomer, false advertising. I want my money back. Um, <laughs> but is it going to increase inflation? Well, it's saying, you know, probably not. So on net, it's kind of a wash. But you're yeah. right. And I, I think the same the same principles can be applied to student loan payments, right? Anytime that you're giving more money to people. And like you said, you know, what they're going to spend it on, we don't know. But even if they are going to spend it on necessities, there's nothing that that caps the price of necessities right now, right? And so if we see an increase in demand, um, you know, think about during the pandemic when we all were buying the same thing at the grocery store, mm-hmm. you know, the, the cost of those goods increased, supply chain issues, all of that kind of stuff. So I think the arguments that we're making um, with respect to any type of government help that puts money back in people's pockets can be applied to student loan repayments. And it's worth pointing out, sorry, I can't help it, but that same logic would say that raising taxes could help cool things off, right? If you start taking money out of people's pockets, Mm -hmm. then maybe that's actually going to help with this inflation issue. Mm -hmm. I I think the uh, the politically uh, unappealing thing about that is that you, there's some thought that you have to raise taxes on the lower and middle income individuals to get that effect because those are the people who are going to be most responsive in their spending to tax rate increases. I think the general consensus is that raising taxes on corporations, which is what the Inflation Reduction Act does, mm-hmm. is probably not an effective way to use tax policy to address inflation. So do you think, again, we're let's fast forward a year from now. Do you think we're having to coordinate fiscal and monetary policy in a, to a point to really cool things down again? Like we're still going to be dealing with this inflation or do you think it's going to, you know, kind of taper off and we're just going to have to work with whatever? <laughs> I I don't think inflation's tapering off. I think the labor market's so tight right now and we still have supply chain issues. Um, people are coming out of, out of the pandemic uh, into more quote unquote, like normal, society and more normal activities and they want to travel again and they want to go out to restaurants again and they want to have you know actual fun again because we didn't have it for two years. People are spending. Yeah. Um, so I don't see it tapering off. I see inflation being a longer term problem. However, I also think that there's a reasonable chance we are heading towards a stock market uh, drop and a, a recession. So mm-hmm. um, it's it, it may be self-correcting in a way. Uh, will it be done by a year from now? Probably not. Um, and are we going to have concerns over the economy a year from now? That's my guess. But uh, I, I don't think we're necessarily going to be talking about how to cool inflation a year from now. I think we're going to have other economic woes to be discussing. Yeah, that's not good for my stress levels. <laughs> or <laughs> sorry, anybody sorry. else. No, no, no. I, that's... Uh, that's unfortunately, I think you're spot on with with like those uh, sentiments. I, I think this is going to be a real interesting uh, couple or, or maybe year to, coming up here. And, you know, hopefully they're going to be able to coordinate better this fiscal and monetary policy, because I think this is going to be a delicate dance. But in your opinion. Does the Fed make a soft landing? It's mm, that's it's tough. I I, I like I, to call, say it's like the beginning of Top Gun when Cougars trying to land. Yeah, yep. that, that's I, I can never find a gift to put that on Twitter, <laughs> but I'm like that's the best scenario. I I always call it like that's what Jerome Powell would be in the cockpit, yep. you know. Yep. And what would it be? His call sign. I was just gonna say what what's, what's his nickname gonna be? Uh, I don't know. That's, 
We'll have to we'll have to reconvene and think about that for the Stay next tuned. one. Yeah. Lisa and Bridget, thank you so much. Their podcast Taxes in the Masses, it's a great listen. Highly encourage you all to go check it out. And uh I'm sure we'll be having you all back here shortly to discuss whatever new tax concoctions the federal government comes up with. I was going to say one thing that's happening over the next year is we got midterms coming up. So this might not even be good law a year from now. Yeah, I, I have a feeling, you know, by December, we'll be reconvening for a next uh, gathering. But thank you, ladies, so much. Thank you. Thanks to Lisa and Bridget for sharing their insights with Mike. And be sure to follow them on social media and check out their podcast, Taxes for the Masses. You can follow Lisa and Bridget on Twitter at Taxes Masses or by visiting their website, taxes-for-the-masses.com. You can follow us on Twitter at financial underscore recon. And as always, if you like this show, please be sure to subscribe and share it. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through the Pinnacle Financial Group, DBA Flagship Wealth Management Group, a registered investment advisor. The Pinnacle Financial Group and Flagship Wealth Management Group are separate entities from LPL Financial. Doctors Lisa DeSimone and Bridget Stomberg and the Taxes for the Masses podcast are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial, Flagship Wealth Management Group, or the Pinnacle Financial Group. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal professional. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.